Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is the one and only Ernie Jarvis. When I think about the pioneers in this space, you're definitely one of the folks that comes to mind for me because, gosh, I feel like when I am in the circles with the what I call my OGs, the folks who have paved the way, um, your name is one of the names that are brought up along with a host of many others. I feel very fortunate to have you on today because I know what you're going to be sharing is going to be inspirational, motivational, educational. And at the same time, I know that your heart is in like this place of let's, let's move this, let's build this, let's get this done. I'm excited to have you on today. We've met in a few different places various Zoom rooms that have emerged out of this whole quarantine situation. He sits in Washington, D.C., so I'm here in Los Angeles, so we are definitely on different coasts. But I think what is going to be great about this conversation is that we get to just, you know, chat like like it's just us. I love that. I love that, girl, and, and I really admire uh, you and your leadership in putting together these podcasts because I think they're very important especially for people who are interested in careers in commercial real estate. And you introduced me very deftly when you called me an OG. And that was the nicest way that anybody's ever referred to me as an old guy. So, but nicely done. Uh, <laughs> but I, but mean... I, 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 I was a pioneer and um, the first wave of people of color to be in commercial real estate. And I am happy to share uh, anything that I've learned along my path with other people and uh, with the hope that it, it inspires somebody uh, because I didn't have those people when I first started. So uh, I love this idea that you're doing uh, and I really applaud your leadership. Thank you so much. I'm I'm just happy anytime I can get on folks' schedule because I know pandemic or not, everyone's time is still valuable and, and making the time is, is always important. So I appreciate you for saying yes. Per my usual, I jump right in and sure. find out a little bit more about your background. Um, in, in preparing for this today, I like uncovered, I feel I, it was a gem to me. Maybe everybody else knows this, or maybe it's a little known fact that you're Charles Drew's grandson. Yes, um, an eldest grandson uh, at, at, at that what a blessing that is because my grandfather passed away when my mother was only seven years old. So I never got an opportunity to meet him. Uh, but when we talk about black history, we talk about our contributions to the world. Uh, I think that he is certainly one um, in his discovery of blood plasma, a little known fact. I mean, he died in 1950 at 44 years old. So he was very young. A uh, little known fact about Dr. Drew is that he in addition to his blood plasma discoveries, he wrote the Omega hymn for Omega Sci-Fi. And so um, when you meet Omegas around the country in Q's and 
and you see them holding hands and they're singing the Omega hymn. He wrote that as well. So when we talk about not only world history, but we talk about black history, he's quintessential. I think that God touched men and women in certain ways. And then after they made a contribution, he brought them home. Um, But I'm happy to know that his contributions are still being talked about because plasma is in the news now as the antibodies for COVID. And so we were doing, as his family, a lot of interviews about the blood plasma contributions. And remember, this is 1940s America and during segregation. And so the challenges that people of color having commercial real estate really pale in comparison to the elders and what they had to deal with in segregated times. Times are getting better, but uh, thank you for bringing that up. It's something that I'm very proud of. Yeah. I mean, when you're a kid, um, were you aware of your of your grandfather's legacy and how did that impact your life going forward? Well, that's a great question. Certainly was very aware of it um, because at Black History Month, uh, my parents were asked to speak about it, my aunts and uncles, a lot. Um, I shouldn't admit this, but from second grade on through college, whenever there was a book report or a famous American report to do, I would do it about him. And and what professor would challenge me on the facts of Dr. Charles Drew because I knew them intimately. So it was just stream of consciousness. But the, the, the legacy that he created really is uh, wonderful, not for me and my family, but for our community. For sure. Let's talk about just how you, Ernie, became Ernie Jarvis today. What were you like as a young guy coming up? Tell me about some of the experiences that have shaped you. Uh, thank you. That's a great question. So when I was at uh, Howard, I did between sophomore and junior year, I did an internship at IBM in the accounting department. And I'd said, that's clearly not what I want to do because there were, there were you know, 50 people on the floor vying for the manager's position in the corner. And you sat down, you got into work, you turned on your computer. Uh, uh, and I mean, this is the old days. So maybe a 296 computer, I mean, really long time ago. You, you sat there and I wanted to be out. I wanted to be among people. I wanted to be inspired by the energy of people. And then between my junior and senior year, I did an internship with Anheuser-Busch and I was kind of the marketing person around Washington to all the local beverages, beverage places and restaurants. And I liked that. I like to be outside. Uh, and then I met a real estate uh, appraiser and I got a part time job working with him. And I learned the economics of a real estate transaction, which was really great experience. Uh, and I got introduced to the real estate business. And so I said, this is this is fun. It keeps me out. I'm talking to people. I'm around the city. I'm around the region. I am. I'm in my car. Um, I love that aspect of it. So uh, that's how I really got started. Um, Probably in my mid 20s, I went out on my own and started my own appraisal company. We did really, really well. And then I met a guy named Willard Freeman, who was at a small brokerage shop and he was a Duke grab and he was a a boater and I am a boater. His boat was double the size of mine. So I said, Willard, what do you do for a living? Because I want to follow your path. And so that's and he was said, Ernie, I'm a tenant rep and I'm a broker. And I and he helped me get a couple of interviews at downtown firms, and that's how my career started. It wasn't because I had this great epiphany when I was 20 or 21 that I wanted to be in real estate. I really got lucky at HBCUs. They don't teach it. And I just happened to meet a guy 
on the water who knew my father. And so that's how it all started. That's and, and, wow. and uh, went on from there. So when I tell my kids that they should know what they want to do at 20, I have to be consistent because I didn't know what I wanted to do at 20. What was the most challenging part of getting started? Well, this is really is a relationship business. And so I would say, in retrospect, there are two things that I would do differently. Um, I would say there's an inside strategy and an outside strategy. And I'm going to uh, use a comparison to Adam Clayton Powell, who was the uh, U.S. congressman from Harlem, at one time introduced more legislation into Congress than anybody else. He was an inside guy. Dr. King, Malcolm X, others, Stokely Carmichael, were outside guys. So inside the brokerage company, there's an inside strategy, meaning identifying a mentor, going to senior brokers and making yourself available, doing the legwork doing the stuff that nobody else wants to do for senior brokers and for the head of your office, because you're, what you're doing is you're learning your craft, you're developing your capabilities, uh, and then you're making yourself available and developing a reputation of doing the work. That's the inside game. The outside game is to immerse yourself in the local business or community. At one point, I was on 12 nonprofit boards, um, and it's not only good to get only on the board, you want to take a leadership position on the board. You want to be chair, you want to be president, whatever it is, and network around. Now that's hard to do in a COVID environment, but if you are in this business now, you have to use social media. You have to have a LinkedIn page. You gotta be on Twitter. You gotta be on Instagram. You gotta be on Facebook. And what I just had a call with somebody I mentored this morning, right now is the best time to call people who are busy, CEOs, et cetera, and say the following with this in mind. If you eventually want a job with them, ask for advice. If you ask for a job, you're going to get advice, right? So keep that in mind. Now is a great time to ask people for advice. So Ernie, 20 years ago, would have said, reach out to more senior people in your city, in your industry, and ask for advice. Don't ask for business. Don't ask for a job. That is solid. Um, I completely agree with everything you're saying, not only just um, meeting people and reaching out. I think now more than ever, um, your ability to network has nothing to do with you meeting somebody in person. Um, I've been in multiple Zoom rooms, Google meetups, um, and even some of the latest ones that are coming out meeting people. And that has nothing to do with coffee. <laughs> right. It's nice when you can have coffee, um, but your ability to pick up the phone, introduce yourself, have a meaningful conversation, be prepared for that conversation is huge. Um, so you are definitely dropping gems as it relates to how to do that. I like that inside strategy, outside strategy. That's, that is key. In terms of rising through the ranks, I know you have had an opportunity to move through a few different roles, um, take on more responsibility. What did you learn, not only about yourself along the way in doing that, but what did you learn in terms of strategies that you've employed in order to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate you asking. Um, unwittingly, I was, or unknowingly, I was running the inside-outside game as I came up through the ranks at CBRE. 
uh, where I had a great career at CBRE. They, it's a publicly traded company, so they have to have succession plans for their market leaders. Uh, at one year, I was uh, asked to be in the Emerging Leaders Program. I was a tenant rep and came up through the tenant rep role. role. Uh, and I went to Emerging Leaders, and I think it was 10 to 15 people from around the country across the platform. And they invited us because we had demonstrated some kind of leadership ability. Uh, and I was very active in the business community at, at that time. And so I said to myself, well, okay, do I want to go into a management role because you're managing brokers? It really takes you outside of your skill set as a, as a tenant rep and a broker. It could potentially be a pay cut. And then you have all the headaches of managing brokers. But I said to myself, Ernie, as an African-American, you have to do this, right? At the time in the industry, there were from the big four or five, JLL, CBRE, Cushman, Colliers, et cetera, I don't think that there was a person of color running a major U.S. market in an office. And so really that was one of the compelling reasons that I did that. Went through the Emerging Leaders Program and got to net worth with wonderful people like Chris Ludeman and others and people who I developed wonderful relationships with uh, at the CEO and leadership level. Got back to Washington and I got a call and said, hey, Ernie, you really impressed a lot of people and we're going to make a change in the Washington, D.C. office. Would you be interested? And I said, of course. Right. I'm, you know, native Washingtonian to get the top floor corner office at CBRE in the fourth largest U.S. market. Why wouldn't I want to do that? Uh, And so the difference between being a market leader and a broker is. As a market leader, I think you have to do three things. You have to run a profitable, efficient business. You've got to be the face of the company in the local business community. When people think about CBRE potential clients or partners or brokers wanting to come to work at CBRE, you have to be the face. You have to be visible. You have to be credible. You have to be ubiquitous. You have to be be deft and smart in in these market-facing roles. So I, you know, that comes to me very easily. I grew up in a political household, so I was accustomed to running in campaigns. So that's the second thing you got to be ubiquitous. The third thing is you have to inspire brokers. Managing brokers isn't really that difficult. Commission disputes are difficult. But if you understand the compensation structure of brokerage, it's commission-based. People have mortgages and car notes and tuitions, and there's a lot of pressure. So as a market leader, you want to make sure that you have all the arrows in the quiver to make the brokers successful. You have to be supportive. You've got to be in the community finding opportunities for them. Uh, And so those are the three things that were different. When you're a broker, you're, you're looking for the next transaction. When you're a managing director or running an office, you're looking at profitability, P&L, recruitment, and, and keeping people in your, in your operations. And so I really thrived in that position. And in one of the years, I think I made the 100 most powerful people in the Washington business community, me and Mr. Marriott and Bob Johnson of BET. I mean, it was really fascinating. And it really it was because of my forward market facing stuff. So at one year during tumultuous times, our D.C. region won the chairman's award 
uh, for the best P&L across the platform. And that's something that I think that leadership team was very proud of. And I'm certainly being very proud to be part of it. So that's really the difference between being a market leader and a broker. In terms of transitioning into what you're doing now, can you talk about, you know, making the decision to go out on your own? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I left CBRE because I got an offer that I just couldn't refuse to go and open a DC office of a publicly traded REIT. And so I said, okay, I don't know where I'm going to go in my career, but not check the box of leadership at, in a brokerage company and P&L responsibility, which was really important to my own professional growth, but an opportunity to be at a publicly traded REIT and be on the acquisition asset management side, kind of a different perspective, because as a market leader for a brokerage company, you're worried about P&L. As an owner of a portfolio, you're worried about rate of return IRRs, raising money through Wall Street. And what a great experience. And so I looked at myself and I said, God is really good because, again, I'm a local guy of color. Clearly, when you talk to me and you understand my history, um, my um, community comes first. My professional life and my family uh, come first, but my community and advancing my community. And so I wanted to demonstrate that people of color could really compete at the highest levels in our industry. So that's one of the reasons I took the REIT job. Learned a lot, and then um, 2016 or so, I decided to go out on my own. This is a relationship business, right? Everyone who comes to Los Angeles, Atlanta, D.C., New York, San Francisco, all the NFL teams, they have capabilities. The p things that make people successful are relationships, right? You've you got to be able to develop relationships and maintain relationships. So I thought that I had developed enough relationships to go out on my own. Um, I took the chance and Garland people were so very kind to me. Um, they wanted me to succeed because they said, if this guy is going to do this at this point in his life, um, there's something that we should do to help him. And there were a lot of people, quite frankly, who said there's no diversity in commercial real estate at any kind of asset class, brokerage, REITs, development. And if not Ernie, then who, if it's going to be Ernie, let's figure out how to help them. And so I, I really grateful that people helped me in my business. And so I really never look back. I mean, is it tough? Sure. I mean, the difference is resources at CBRE, you know, there, there's a technology person, right? And so when something goes wrong and I'm saying, hey, call IT, there's no IT. There's one of my teenagers who's laying across the sofa when I'm running down the street at nine o'clock trying to catch the FedEx guy, right? These are the things, but I do this to make a good living and support my family. But I also want to hope that I inspire somebody with my story. I hope that I inspire someone with the chances that I took. And I want to inspire young people of color to say, if that guy can do it, I can do it. Right? Totally. Yeah. What I keep hearing with you is you develop relationships, you've developed networks. And I think anyone in not only commercial real estate, but anybody who understands how business transactions happen, how people decide to work with someone else. Um, the relationship is 
a huge part of that. Can you break down what that really means? Because I think when people hear relationship building and networking, they may not know what does what does that really mean? And, and Garland, that's a great question because in our community, in the African-American community, if you're a woman, white or African-American, Asian, Latino, we don't necessarily have those relationships with decision makers who make large scale real estate decisions. So you have to think about, I'm not going to be a member of a country club. There's nothing wrong with country clubs. I mean, some of my best friends, I'm not going to be invited to many of them. Um, we don't have those social networks. Uh, my friends who I grew up uh, live on one side of town and the people in my industry live on the other side of town. So when you go to the grocery store, you're not going to run into people who make decisions about real estate. So how do we do that? Right. How do we leverage the relationships that we have? And this is where my strategy external was um, showing up to any organization, whether it be the American Red Cross, whether it be the American Cancer Society, whether it be industry organizations, showing up and doing the work is half the battle. Right. Because when you get involved in these organizations, that's where you do meet CEOs and managing partners. You got to immerse yourself in that. But you can't just show up and say, I met somebody. I'm going to call them to get real estate. That's not how you earn your stripes. So, for instance, there's something called the District of Columbia Building Industry Association, which represents all the downtown developers. In my early career, I sat at the desk and checked boxes when people came into the Christmas party. I moved the boxes around. And they said, okay, this guy will work. Let's advance him to a committee. And then you work on the committee and you're, you, you know, we're all very thoughtful and you try to make a contribution and say something smart. Um, and then people say, okay, that's interesting because what we do have is market knowledge. We do see trends. Uh, we do see cap rate movement. We do see lease rate movement. That's very valuable to organizations. And then you get to be the committee chair. And then you say to the executive director, I'd like to be on the board. And then you spend five or six years and you say, I want to be president. So that took me 10 years to be president of DCBIA. I was one of the few people of color and the youngest to ever do that. Right? And it's not because I'm a rocket scientist. I sat and checked the box when people came in in my early career. It's showing up. So you do that at five or six organizations it takes a while. All of a sudden, you're recognized as, you know, Garland shows up and she does the work, right? She's talented. She's capable. She's smart. Uh, and so people start to advance you. Um, it is difficult. It was difficult for me because I had a young family and you're balancing um, a, a young family and all of your external stuff compounded that my wife had a very visible job as well. And so it's the balancing act. Um, I'm, I'm looking at one of my sons now, and he's kind of rolling his eyes, but it is, it's not easy, right? It's not easy, but it's not easy for us, right? We don't have the relationships. I totally agree. I mean, he he's literally telling you how to do it. Um, and I've done exactly what you said in various organizations that I'm in right now. So um, I, you're literally giving the, the keys to me, the keys to success. Um, 
because that is exactly what it is in terms of building the relationships. Um, and in terms of you realizing where you can show up, not only add value, but also um, be instrumental in shaping how people do and see things. Well, I mean, thank you for the compliment, but I'm going to throw that right back at you because what you were doing is taking what people like me started and elevating it, right? And, and I say that with all sincerity and all admiration because my hope in life is to see the next generation do better than I have, right? And, and you have figured out a platform. You've given yourself a voice. You've become a thought leader and people are listening to this. I actually, for the for the audience, I reached out to Garland because I was so impressed at, at what she was doing and what accomplishing. Um, and and I, I watched your podcast and I said, this is different. This is a different type of person. And if there's anything that I can do to advance her career or give her any nuggets of wisdom or her audience nuggets of wisdom, I went to, because again, Ernie's fine. Ernie's done okay. But I want this next generation to attack it with the passion and the zeal and the commitment in which you are attacking it. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, that is just warm in my heart today. This is, oh, I didn't expect to hear this, but I'm feeling it and I'm taking it in. I appreciate that comment. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's 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 the truth. Wonderful. Yeah. I feel like we could talk for a very long time. So I'm <laughs> going to try to remember that we're running a podcast with some specific yeah. things going yes. on. Yes. I would love for you to, you know, talk to me about, you know, the things you're involved with now. I know Reese is a big part of that. Um, I know you've recently been appointed to a board. You are quite active still in the Washington, D.C. area with a variety of organizations. So tell me all that you're involved with at this at this juncture. Uh, you know, one thing that I'm really not that involved in, and though I have the greatest respect for Tammy Jones and Reese, I'm not really involved in Reese. I used to be, um, and, and maybe because... I was too, I was being, I didn't have enough time to give a commitment to everything, but what Reese is doing is really wonderful and it's opening up doors and opportunities for people. Uh, so um, being on a publicly traded bank board is really a great accomplishment for me because if you're vetted by a publicly traded bank board, um, I understand that board beget boards. And while people have diversity and inclusion initiatives, I think there was a little part of that in this one, but the bank board, Eagle Bank that I'm on, is heavily invested in real estate and in commercial real estate. So I think that I bring value two ways. One, I understand a PL and a pro forma. Um, and two, um, you know, DNI brings different perspectives. And I think that banks in corporate America, especially what NASDAQ just said, NASDAQ just said, if for their publicly traded companies, you have to have a ethnic minority or a woman on your board, or they could potentially delist you. Right. So these things are coming and there's so much talent out there. If I could give advice to um, young people, young professionals, and I wish that I had done this over my career. The intellectual capital that we have in the real estate business is unparalleled. People of color, women may not have actual financial capital, 
but we have intellectual capital. I would say for people in real estate, start a small fund on your own account, friends and family, your colleagues, and try to buy one piece of property per year. Starting at age 35, it's tough. People starting families, people buying homes, people buying first cars, people have student loans. Aggregate your money in your community. And even if it's a two unit flat, right? The rent stream could pay the debt. Try to do that every year or two. After 10 or 15 years, by the time you're 50, 55, you may have amassed a decent portfolio. We're in an industry where we learn the market. Again, intellectual capital. Convert that to wealth building. It's very important. I see a lot of people who live large in the industry, right, of salary. But you say, do you have real estate? You're in the real estate business, right? And so I would urge people to do that. It's hard. It is hard. One of the things that I did early in my career, I started to do that, not as much as I like. And so um, I took advantage of my ethnicity and relationships and ended up in with equity positions, small equity positions of large scale deals. City Center in the Midtown Washington is about a billion dollar project. I am the I am a uh, minority partner in there on the equity side. Right. So. I I urge people to think about how they can buy a property a year with their mamas, with their daddies, with their aunties, with their cousins, right? With their partners, right? How you're making me like, I mean, we we maybe need to start doing these as video, but I am like smiling from ear to ear because um, I have been having this conversation. It feels like even more so now, like we've been, I've been talking about syndication, like outside of this podcast, Um, but maybe that's going to be something we're going to be talking about next year. Cause I I have like some people that I'm like, I need you to come on and talk about this because this is something that I feel like we need to get out there. Um, And I've been in a lot of rooms lately where that is the conversation, um, wealth building, whether it is exactly what you're saying, you know, cooperative economics, people getting together, putting their money together. I'm a part of an investment group myself. There's a lot of other, um, I'd say, opportunities to do that. And so um, to me, that is the 2.0 of this. Like 1.0 is getting in the industry, learning it, learning, like you said, the the intellectual capital. Um, But the 2.0 is then taking that and working it into how you, um, build wealth. Also, how you um, you know continue to create opportunities in your community, um, because I think there's one thing that I've heard you say, and I it's been a theme of a lot of the folks that I've had on is uh, social impact in your community, um, being able to give back, pay it forward, be able to take what you've learned and help up the next generation. Um, because everybody, everybody remembers what it was like to not know, to not have, et cetera. And so when you know, when you have, it's imperative for you to share it. Imperative. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we, we, my, my wife is a senior vice president at Howard and, and you would be surprised at the number of people who go to HBCUs who are first generation college, right? Mm-hmm. 
people forget about this, and I don't want to sound like a politician, but our community's got a long way to go. There was legalized segregation in this country during my lifetime. I'm not that old, right? So we don't have generational wealth. And so we have to, what did you call it? Social economics? Cooperative economics. You know what's, uh, Garland, I'm going to absolutely steal that because again, I am learning from you, right? That is a perfect term. And so for women and people of color, we, we have to work a little bit differently. I love that expression because there is no generational wealth. But we are now getting into an environment where we're understanding the industry. We're understanding the rules. We're understanding the return on investment. And through your um, tentacles and reaching people, you, you, you know, somebody may watch this and say, I'm going to call, call Garland tomorrow and we're going to start a fund with $500 a month with five people. And we're going to then go find a piece of property. We have a, a little bit of equity and then we're going to go get debt and we're going to buy a two unit flat somewhere um, in the hood, anywhere. And that's going to be our first property. Pay it down. It appreciates. That's how it starts. Yes. Right. You don't have it. It, can, it doesn't have to be home runs. Too many of us think about let's go swing for the fences. Hit a single first and hit five. Hit a single, hit a few singles to the point where you are now doing home runs and bringing other people on to get singles and helping, you know, retire somebody. Like, let's just go there. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, I've got my kids earbuds in it and clearly they don't fit my ears. So please forgive me about the technical stuff. Um, But no, you're, you're, you're right. And, and, and Garland, it's really not that hard. It's really not. It's got to be a commitment in saying, in, instead of getting the big six series BMW, I'm going to get a used three series. It's, it's those sacrifices early in your career. And I'm not, I don't want to sound preachy, but I, I'm saying I wish that I had done that early in my career, candidly. And you, you can chastise me. When I started making money as a broker, I bought a 911 Turbo. Right. Not smart. Thank God it worked out. Right. (laughs) But I did exactly (laughs) what I'm professing that the next generation not do. Well, this is why I appreciate this conversation, because it's lessons learned. Right. Like um, financial literacy, I'd say when you are coming into money, um, you know, everyone has a dream thing, whether it's a car, a boat, a house. Uh, you know, women love the bags and the shoes and the jewelry. I mean, everyone's got something that you're like, it's your tangible piece of I've made it right. Um, But what you're essentially prescribing is not to get too excited too quickly. You can have those things, just create a strategy around making sure that you're not, you know, wiping out the bank, so to speak, when you could still, like you said, get that used three series or whatever, get something at auction, like car auctions are a whole nother thing. We can, you and me, I think we need to get offline and talk about how there's (laughs) deals to be made. But I mean, there's, there's ways to still get what you want without feeling like you have to, um, you know, compromise your ability to provide for the future. Nicely said. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And 
Um, for, for the people who are in the brokerage community, when you turn the corner after the pledge of poverty, after you start the first three or four years and the faucet turns on, you, you, you feel like God, I've made it through, you know, I walked across the burning sands and now I'm going to reward myself. 20 years ago, I would have thought differently. Um, and and I'm, I don't mean to be jumping around, but I know that our time is limited. I hope in the next couple of years that we will see more people of color in the brokerage ranks. Um, I'm not optimistic, Garland, but I hope we will do that. We are operating in a constrained economic environment now. Many of the large companies are hesitant to bring people of any race or any gender in. I'm going to be a contrarian right now and say that if your market is the three to $500 million market, let's make a commitment to find fifty dollars or $60,000 and bring in a woman or a person of color. Have the market leader mentor them through tough times. Have a senior broker mentor them who really has a sensibility about mentorship and not because somebody, the market leader asked them to. Because when the market takes off again, then that young person will be ready to take off. I hope that we'll see that. Um, I hope that our industry will avoid random acts of diversity. I hope we will make a commitment to figuring out strategies of taking an associate to a senior associate to a vice president to those levels. It is different for us, Garland. It is harder. It is the networks. Uh, my wife and I have this conversations about kids who go to HBCUs may have never interacted with someone white. Someone white may have never interacted with an African-American, right? So we are in a very competitive industry and the whole socialization makes it even more difficult, right? And so I hope that market leaders, executive leaders of big firms will understand these dynamics and make changes not to support people, but understand there really are cultural differences and you say, well, we don't have time for that stuff. We are profit-making organizations. Well, let's say that hasn't worked in the past. It's not a criticism. Let's just say we ought to have a recognition. There are cultural differences. HBCUs are hot now, right? We can adapt to any, anywhere. But coming in, there are cultural differences. Again, many people... Some people, many, at HBCUs, HBCUs have never been around white professionals because they've been in a black environment and vice versa. So I think we got to recognize that. It makes it harder, but I really like the strategy of inside, outside, internal, external. Right? Yeah, and the, and the key to bringing in, last, lastly, the key to bringing in people, women and people of color, they, it is incumbent that the market leader makes a commitment that that person will be successful, putting them on incoming business, inbound business, right? Um, attaching them to a senior broker who really wants to mentor and gets the social distance. I mean, the social dynamic difference. Yeah. It's not insurmountable. It's commitment. I did agree. Um, I mean, I know you've got a 10 point plan and we're going to include that in the show notes where you are, I think, very prescriptive. You talk 
very openly about what the importance is of equity and justice in creating processes and procedures to move the needle. So it's not just, you know, kind of the big picture, um, you know, why it's important. It's also the how to go about doing it. Um, and so I appreciate you, you know, kind of talking more about it because as someone who is a strategist on the inside, um, I can tell you that a lot of this is um, sometimes harder to do <laughs> than I yeah. would like to admit. Um, yeah. And oftentimes it is very much, um, you know, being a voice in the room where you're like, like, this is why it needs to happen. And, and you know, socialization is a part of it. Um, yeah. It's also, uh, I think, again, a big why reason why I'm doing this podcast is, you know, hearing people's stories, hearing about where they're coming from. Um, because I think when you hear um, people's origin stories and what matters to them, that's who's showing up in the room. That's who's showing up in the room to make decisions. That's who's telling you what their motivations are. That is what makes them the lens that they look through the world critical to your decision making. And so if you understand that, like truly understand that, um, you want us in those rooms. Yeah. Like, you need us in those rooms. Yeah. Uh, the demographics of this of this country are shifting. And so for the organization to survive, I, I've been I've been saying this for a while, for the survival of your organization, you need a variety of opinions and voices and backgrounds present so that you're not missing the mark. I, I agree. And what really is the most compelling thing, corporate America, law firms, big associations, the government, if you send in a team of uh, four homogenous, handsome guys with blue suits and red ties, those atmospherics don't meet the demographics, the changing demographics that you just mentioned. That's not going to win the business. I, I went on a pitch recently and I, you know, I partnered with large companies um, a number of times and I went into a pitch where there were four or five people on the opposite side. Uh, there was a, um, uh, a Asian American, uh, a, a gay American, an African American, a white guy and um, a white woman. If you don't match those atmospherics somehow, you're not going to get the assignment. If you send in four handsome guys with blue suits and red ties, I just don't think that works anymore because it's not their mandate for corporate American law firms, nonprofits, the government. They have real DNI initiatives and, and they're committed to it. And they want to see that in their service providers. It's not a slight on handsome guys with blue suits and red ties. It just means that the world is changing and to be uh, a profitable organization that you just alluded to, um, you have to match those atmospherics. You got to bring not diversity of gender and race, but diversity of perspectives. Agreed. I think you make a good point. Um, so we're going to wrap up because I value your time and I know that, you know, we could maybe we maybe have a part two at some point, like just to check in like what's happening. Uh, or maybe you can tell us what it's like to be on a public, publicly traded board. Like that's another fun topic 
that um, I would love to be able to talk about, because like you said, there's not enough of us out there doing that. Um, And so even understanding what it takes to get there, what it takes to, um, you know, be in those circles so that you are the name that's brought up. That's a huge, huge thing. But um, I'm going to close out the the things that I'd say ask right before the end are for you to finish um, this sentence. Inclusion in my industry looks like? Evolving. What does life look like coming full circle to you? Uh, People like Garland Fuller who are taking what the few of us started, escalating it and running with it on a different platform, using technology and, and reaching people who are decision makers and influencers, but also touching people who are interested in commercial real estate. I can't tell you how powerful I think your platform is. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. You are uh, just a gem, just a gem. Uh, OG, <laughs> I mean, Mr. DC, I don't know. I got to find some names for you. I love it. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for taking the time to come on. Um, I will put all of Ernie's information in the show notes and provide you details about his firm and you know all the cool things that he's doing. Um, you can definitely connect with him on LinkedIn, but I do want you to understand the legacy, the legend of being able to be a first in this industry is huge because without an Ernie, there wouldn't be a me. And without an Ernie, there wouldn't be a lot of the brokers um, that are out here, uh, male and female of color that are working to bring voice to their communities, bring voice to their interests and give back ultimately. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on today. Well, thank you uh, for having me. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday. What a great episode with Ernie Jarvis. Uh, He is one of the, as I said, OGs within the commercial real estate industry, specifically brokerage. Um, Having had the opportunity to speak with him today was just much, I'd say, much more than I could have imagined. Um, You know, when you meet people and then they are just so just kind and genuine and um, that I think has been one of the most exciting parts of just doing this podcast. So for him, um, my takeaways um, are the importance of being strategic about taking work that comes your way so that you can learn, um, demonstrating your ability through you know, that work, and then becoming known as a team player, as an expert, as someone who is a go-to for something. As a result, being the best is a big part of that. It's important to, you know, when you are tapped for things or you are given an opportunity to be in rooms with people of influence, is that you show up powerfully, confidently with what you know. Um, and I think he spoke a lot about that um, during our interview. He's also a major advocate uh, of diversity, equity, inclusion in the space. Um, he talked a lot about what it was like to be the only in the room, um, which I think that's been a reoccurring theme for me is what happens when you are the only in the room and 
Um, for him, it was stepping into his voice, making sure that he was bringing his community with him. Uh, so realizing that it's not just only about you, but it's also about who you represent when you show up in rooms. And so being very intentional about how you use your position. Thirdly, I would say, and this was more so the end of our conversation, the importance of being financially savvy when you look at, you know, when you do start to rise up the ranks and you are becoming more of a someone who has means, being intentional about generational wealth, looking at how you um, position your money so that they continue to grow and participating in activities that allow you to um, continue to see greater gains. And I, I don't think we talk about that enough. Uh, oftentimes when you, you know, you said he got a 911 Porsche, which I think everyone has that thing that they love, that they want um, as a symbol of making it. Um, and I thought his uh, astuteness as saying, you know, maybe I should have been a bit more um, aware of those trappings and thinking about things I could have been using that money for instead. And so I think that's super wise advice because it is it is something oftentimes where you want that thing more so and maybe looking at it from a long-term perspective you can have that and more in the future, but maybe not right out the gate. Um, so I'd say those are the three things that I you know garnered from my interview with Ernie. Uh, first, being strategic about the work and showing up in the best, most possible um, light. So that way you're able to demonstrate your ability and be seen as a team player. Secondly, as an advocate, understanding that when you step in a room, using your voice for change and making it known that you're, you know, representing whatever those um, attributes or things that you want to be known for, your brand, so to speak. For him, it was bringing his community with him. And then thirdly, I'd say looking at how you can be more financially savvy, um, looking at investments, looking at equity stakes um, in order to build generational wealth for yourself. So um, those are the three things that I'd say stood out. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.